Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Life seems to be a choice between two wrong answers. That was written by Sharon McCrum. If ever I return, pretty Peggy O. Great. Thanks, Emma. I've got someone in reading out the quote for me today. Emma from Freedom of Species. Freedom now, of species, give, yeah. your, give your program a plug. Uh, we um, talk about all things animal advocacy, but I'm told that you should say advocacy instead of advocacy. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah. Oh, well, it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. Sounds it sounds a bit more sophisticated advocacy. Anyway. Yeah, as long as you advocate on behalf of animals. As long as we advocate, exactly. And what time's your program on? Uh, 1pm on Sundays, and we podcast as well. Great. Yeah. All right. Yep, I'll, I'll have to find your promo and play that so that people can tune Please in. Please do. I have quite a few different animal animal interviews on the program. I know, they've been fantastic. Great. Yeah. Okay, and welcome to Radical Philosophy, and I'm your host, Beth Matthews. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm Lucy Main, a master's student at Monash University. And I'm speaking to Melinda Tankard-Risk about, well, about many things, about quite a few books that Melinda has written and now also, you've been engaged in voluntary aid work, including caring for infants with disabilities that have been relinquished for adoption. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I was involved with a an agency in Hong Kong, we're talking 20-something years ago now, where... Many babies sadly were abandoned uh, because they were girls or because they were disabled. Uh, often the two, in fact, you know, were combined. And we uh, took in these babies and uh, found loving families for them. Now, of course, you would want the cultural attitudes to change. You, you would want to see a, a shift in attitudes towards uh, disability and girl babies. But until that changes you know, something has to, to be done to help these children. And and uh, so, yeah, I was involved in, in caring for the special needs babies that were relinquished for adoption and often found uh, homes for from uh, couples, you know, outside of, uh, outside of uh, Asia. Yeah, so that was a really rewarding time. Right, so were they adopted into other countries? Yes, uh, often they w- were because, sadly... Not uh, not many people uh, in those countries wanted a, a disabled baby, and often there was an attitude that this was bad karma. You know that that uh, this uh, mother must be punished for something bad she's done in in having this child. So you're up against a lot of cultural biases and discrimination, and uh, you know inequality in 
attitudes towards children with disabilities. And uh, we were able to keep in touch with uh, a couple of the families that adopted babies. One, hair, lip and cleft palate, which, you know, in Australia was easily correctable. Uh, but he was abandoned for that reason. And um, he's doing really well. In fact, he ended up living in Canberra, where I'm from, and uh, going to university. And uh, he's just gone on to do so well. So that's that's quite encouraging. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Even in this country, I mean, we're, we're probably better than... Well, a lot of countries, but um, people say, oh, you know, there's um, there's no babies up for adoption in Australia. Well, that's not true. There's actually a lot of children up for adoption and uh, they're, they're children with, with disabilities. I know one couple who had adopted a, a lovely, lovely baby boy with Down syndrome. And, yeah, yeah they're, they're very happy. And he's... he's He's um, actually gone on, mm. gone on to university. He's um, mm-hmm. doing English papers at university. Wow. So it was incredible. Well, sadly, yes, there is still a negative attitude towards uh, children and people with, with disabilities. And there's also an attitude that you have to have your own you know, so-called genetic baby. And this is why we're seeing a rise of reproductive tourism, uh, surrogacy overseas, where many people are commissioning women often in developing countries and getting a womb from one woman an egg from another a woman all of them you know at a disadvantage and uh being paid to produce children so you know this is a problem when there are already existing children who can't find homes when you know we'll spend millions and millions of dollars in buying children from from other countries and buying children buying the bodies of poor women to gestate babies for other people and there'll be no connection and no they won't have a right to know their genetic origins and 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 be in touch and have any kind of relationship no that's right i think baby gammy brought up a lot of different issues and especially Mm. you know being a a child with a disability and and not being wanted Mm. and basically basically Mm. being dumped in another country left there to fend for himself basically and um, well, thankfully, his surrogate—you know—thankfully, his uh, biological mother is the woman that that gave birth to him. Thankfully, she—you know—she kept him. She could couldn't stand to see him abandoned and the mistreatment, and and she's raising him, you know, as her as her son. Such a such a brave thing to do, but it shouldn't have come to that, you know. No, it certainly shouldn't have come to that. But I think that a, a lot of people have given financial support as well. You yes, know, from, they have. Which is yeah. which is fantastic. So I think that that sort of it, it does mean that attitudes here are changing, and it's good to mm. bring those stories mm. into the media, and uh, yeah. so so that people can realise the the situation. Now you've written, yeah, sure. you've been involved in writing quite a few books. One mm. is giving sorrow words. Women's Stories of Grief After Abortion. Um, Yes, it's my first book. It's out of print now, but my publishers, Spinifex Press, are interested in bringing it back into print. And I really hope that happens because so many women still contact me wanting to get a copy of it. It came out in 2000. It's a collection of, of stories of Australian women who had terminations and then were shocked by what happened afterwards. They weren't prepared for feelings of loss and mourning and grief and desiring this baby and you know wanting this baby back. They had been told abortion would be quick, simple, easy, over with, you'll be able to get on with your life. And I felt that we, you know, in the rhetoric around abortion and the politics around abortion, we needed to hear from uh, these women who hadn't been heard from really in Australia 
And we had to critique the rhetoric around choice. What does choice really mean for women who are marginalised, who may be kicked out of school, may lose their jobs, don't have financial support? What, what, how can we even talk about the right to choose when that so often, or mostly, I would argue, just means abortion. It doesn't mean the right to have your child and be supported in that. So that, that's why I wrote that book, to give those women a voice, uh, to end the silence around um, grief and, and maternal loss uh, over a, an aborted child. Right, so would you like to go into one of the stories? Oh, wow, well, so many of them were so moving. I remember the opening story uh, from a woman called Marguerite, who I'm still in contact with, and she said, I open my arms to embrace the air. Um, she, she said he's like a shadow child, he's, he's always around her. There are other women who talked about having a, a birthday cake every year to, to mark this, this lost child. Um, other women desperate to have a child straight after to try to make up uh, for their loss, the, re- the replacement child. Uh, one woman would hear a baby crying at night even though you know there was no baby. She'd get up to and attend a, a baby that, that wasn't there. Uh, women going to the graves of other women's babies and pretending that's the grave for their own child. They needed a physical place to visit and, and mark this child's life and loss. Uh, so, yeah, they were some of the really moving... <laughs> examples from the, from the stories of, of these women and I still hear from women you know I could have filled multiple books with with stories really and all of them said you know that they're silenced that they're not allowed to speak out that they're told you know they're betraying this precious right uh, but why should they be denied why can't women know the truth and what how they might end up you know we, we can't talk about choice when the the facts are often kept from women and I don't think any woman who calls herself a feminist or pro-woman should deny women information to be able to to make an informed decision about what they what they really want to do and part of my work is to uh, end the obstacles that often compel women to have abortion so I'm trying to stop I'd like to stop unwanted abortion. I'd like us to agree that if a woman doesn't have a, have a choice, if she has an unwanted abortion, that's not a great thing. Um, so I helped to set up two housing services for women here in the ACT. It's a 20-year uh, service now, and it's helped hundreds and hundreds of women to have their, their babies and, and be able to make a life-affirming choice. Um, so, you know, I believe we need to provide practical support for women uh, that goes beyond um, any, any of the rhetoric from either side, really. So why do you think it is that the, these women are silenced in our society? Mm, I think because uh, there's uh, the strength of the, the ideology around choice prevents a, a true examination of what it really means for women. It's like this mantra that just gets repeated over and over again rather than looking at the real needs of women, in my view, Abortion is a sign that we've failed women, that we haven't met the real needs of, of women. Women are offered abortions because we haven't offered them anything else. You know, we don't want to restructure society to cater for mothers and babies. Uh, we just tell women, get an abortion, you know, and that often suits uh, the the partner, the, you know, the father of the child. It suits the employer. It suits the school. You know, we, we don't need to make any radical structural changes so that, you know, every mother can choose to to have her baby and not be discriminated against or suffer for that choice. Another book you've been involved with is Defiant Birth, Women Who Resist eugenics. Medical Eugenics. Yes. So that book is also a collection of stories. I've, I've always liked to 
enable women to tell their stories and these are first-person accounts of women who were pressured to terminate on the basis of disability and often the so-called diagnosis was was wrong but it's about the terrible pressure women are put under to go through genetic screening and then to, to terminate if the baby isn't deemed to be perfect. So it's about the way that we judge some people as worthy of living and, and others as, as not. And I'm arguing that the eugenic practices of uh, Germany and other countries, I mean, America actually started eugenics, uh, haven't ended, really. We still have this eugenic mentality that says some people are worthy of life and others aren't. Some are given a genetic stamp of approval and... Others are not and are, you know, relegated to the dustbin, basically. So it's about the, the pressure, the coercion on women and how they often weren't making informed choice. But these were women that rose up against that pressure and they decided they wanted to have their babies anyway, that their babies were, were worthy of life and that we shouldn't only allow them so-called perfect to live. And they had their babies. And as an act of defiance, really, against this uh, eugenic perfectionist mentality, so that, that was my second book, and um, it was just a joy to write, really, the strength and the resilience, the bravery of these women in standing up to the, the sort of the dominant medical discourse around um, disability and life unworthy of life was, was just extraordinary. And, yeah, I, I felt really pleased to be able to put that book out into the world as well. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Melinda Tankard-Reist about some of the books that she's been involved with. Yeah, moving along, there was also Getting Real, Challenging the Sexualisation of Girls. Yes, that's my third book and it's just gone into its ninth printing with Spinifex Press. Uh, this book really, I suppose, made my work known. Um, this book seemed to strike a chord. So many people were concerned about sexualization of, of children and I decided to bring together expert contributors from around the world on this subject and put, it, put their contributions into a book for the first time. Um, so getting real challenging the sexualization of girls I think, you know, made a fairly important contribution to, to this discussion. I think it actually got the discussion established, helped to get the discussion established in Australia because uh, really the term wasn't even used much before. It, now it's in the, the public lexicon. It's used in, you know, daily media and the term sexualisation of, of girls. And it, it talks about how when we sexualise girls, when we reduce them to the sum of their parts and treat them as middle mini-adults, we are causing them physical and mental harm uh, our girls are growing up in a pornified world, a pornified landscape, and they're learning that their values lies in being seen hot and sexy. Uh, they learn that their bodies must be on display. They're learning that they'll be rewarded in a culture that um, values exhibitionism and doesn't value girls for their strengths, their talents, their gifts, their abilities, their desire to make a difference in the world. So it brought together the existing research at that time, and there's a lot more research now, actually, but... Um, yeah, so that was that was book number three, and my second book was Spinifex Press. 
Right, yeah. There, I think it's a good thing that there's been a lot more research into that. Yes. Now, Big Porn, exposing the harms of the global pornography industry. Now, I suppose mm-hmm. well, quite a few people would argue, look, you know, it's just a bit of harmless fun. How would you respond mm. to that? Oh, the research is so solid on this now. The way that uh, pornography is driving abuse, violence against women, sexual assault. There's a growing bit of research on this now that says that uh, boys who are compulsive porn users are more accepting of sexual harassment. They believe it's okay to hold a girl down and force her uh, to have sex. They're learning a sense of entitlement to the bodies of of women and girls and girls are learning through pornography that uh, they should be up for it 24-7. They have no right to say no. Uh, that violent, abusive practices are, are erotic. Uh, so the book documents that. And I also wrote on this just uh, last week a piece on ABC Religion and Ethics called Growing Up in Pornland, How Girls Are Harmed by Porn-Conditioned Boys. And I give examples there of what girls themselves tell me. I address thousands of girls around the country every year. And the stories are deeply disturbing, and they're getting younger about uh, boys demanding porn-inspired sex acts, boys demanding naked selfies from the girls, girls not knowing how to say no or that they even have a right to know, girls being groped at school, on the school bus, on the way home, Uh, even young girls showing me on their phones demands for sexual images. So I brought a lot of those anecdotes together as well as some of the global research in this piece and it had a massive response, 100,000 views, third most read piece ever on the site and I hear from women and girls every day about what boys want to do to them based on pornography. Boys aren't learning how to make love. They're learning how to just treat a woman or a girl as a, a, a live sex doll, a, a living crash, crash test dummy, really. And in fact, I have a piece on my blog from a young woman. She's only 21, but at 18, she was in a relationship with a man who bashed her if she said no to the porn-inspired acts that he demanded. He also starved her because her body didn't conform to what he saw in pornography. And this was a first-hand account of how pornography contributes to to domestic violence. Thankfully, she got out of that relationship and her story has just had so many views on my page and uh, other women coming forward and saying the same thing. Harmless fun? No, that's a lie. It's been from the uh, sex industry. Yeah, there's also, uh, I've been reading about cases of quite young women going in for surgery to make their their genitals look like porn stars' genitals. I mean, I wouldn't even even know what that looked like. Unless you were looking at porn, you wouldn't know how you're supposed to look and how you're not supposed to look, would you? That's exactly right, Beth. In fact, there's been a 50% increase in demand for vulvoplasty, labioplasty procedures in the, the last decade, and that's from women 15 to 24, <clears throat> as you say, because of uh, pornography, uh, because of Brazilian waxing, they can see more and they think there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with them. Isn't it interesting how we condemn female genital mutilation when it happens in other countries far away, but we're actually mutilating the genitals of our girls here in in Australia, the cosmetic surgery industry is making a killing on this. Uh, and yet these girls have nothing wrong, but they're expected to conform to what boys and men are seeing in in pornography. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of the connection between those two, but yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. You know, have a, have a look at what's going on in this country, and because yeah. oh, it, it's because um, the women are actually requesting it, it, it seems to be yeah. all right. But it's it's That's like right. a form of of brainwashing, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is a form of brainwashing. Our our, our young women are being indoctrinated into pornographic ideology and they think that this is normal. They think this is how women should look and act and be and our boys are being indoctrinated as well. And, you know, why do we even express surprise at the rising rates of abuse of women and girls when you look at the the diet that boys are being fed, which eroticizes violence and abuse, which tells boys that uh, it's sexy to to mistreat women. I mean, look at Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, released on Valentine's Day. I've got year seven girls now asking me, if he wants to hit me, beat me, whip me, chain me, tie me up and stalk me, does that mean it's romantic? Because, you know, this film came out on Valentine's Day. I say, this is what we want to present to girls as romantic. And as uh, friends of mine that are in the domestic violence arena working in refuges say to me, you know, our refuges are full of the, the victims of the Christian greys of this world. But, you know, it's so mainstream, it's so entrenched and normalised in the culture. So this is where girls learn about sexuality and relationships. Mm, yeah, it's it's very sad, isn't it? Making no making yes. the connection like that. You are also the founding director of the Women's Forum Australia. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, yes, I certainly was. Uh, I've moved on from that now, and I'm a founder of Collective Shout for a World Free of Sexploitation, which I started around eight years ago. Now, I helped to start eight years ago now to name and shame advertisers, corporations, and marketers who objectify women and sexualise girls to sell our products and services. Uh, so Women's Forum was more, more of a, a think tank and I wanted to engage more in direct direct action, direct activism. So that's what I'm doing now. And uh, we've got a movement with about 75,000 people involved and we've uh, named and shamed many corporations and helped to change the way that they advertise and mobilise people to take action for... Um, social transformation and for cultural change. My new book has literally just arrived uh, in the mail today, just before you call me. It's called Prostitution Narrative, Stories of Survival in the Sex Trade. And I've written this with Dr. Caroline Norma. It's a collection of 20 stories of of women who have exited the sex industry, a global collection, uh, women telling their stories about what it was like, you know, countering this spin that it's a great career choice, you can make heaps of money and wear nice clothes and get to travel and, you know, meet rich men and all of that. Uh, This tells the truth of the industry and it lays bare what really does go on and it includes girls recruited into the industry uh, underage and it it, it just talks about the need uh, for exit programs, the need to help women that want to get out uh, to, to get out. It debunks the myths really about... Uh, that spread, are spread by the pro-prostitution forces uh, by using first-hand uh, testimony of, of women who who were there, who were in it. You know, this is not a, a theory. This is not a theoretical academic work. This is the, the real voices of the women who were in it and who got out. All right. So, and they've come along to uh, to join the group as well, have they? Oh, well, uh, some of them are uh, part of, uh, of abolitionist movements and collective Collective Shout certainly is one to try and uh, end end this global trade which buys and sells women, you know, around the world. 
so this is the latest book from Spinifex Press. It's officially out um, next month, and, it, and it'll be launched in Melbourne, actually, April the 10th. So uh, you're very welcome to come along, Beth, you and you and any of your friends. Uh, yeah, we'd, if people want to come, they can have a look at the Spinifex Press uh, website or, or my website, melindatankardreese.com, to uh, find out the details for that. Well, we just uh, encourage people to, to have a read of that and, uh, you know, then to, to make up their minds as to whether sex industry is a good thing or not uh, when so many women are bought and sold and used in the industry including in in prostitution in in strip clubs in webcams and in in to make pornography as well i'm really pornography is just the filming of of prostitution so yeah the book lays bare the realities the true nature of what it's like to work in the industry from the, the voices of the women who thankfully survived and, and got out of it and our hope is that this book will help other women uh, to, to get out as well, as, as well as help to strengthen and mobilise the, the global abolitionist movement against all of this. I wanted to speak about the, the injury sort of sustained too with women working mm. as, as prostitutes. Oh. Well, there's a, a lot of documentation now about uh, physical injuries, about mental injuries as well. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a big one. Some of the research indicates that most women in the industry that leave the industry have, have post-traumatic stress, obviously depression, anxiety, a drug addiction, alcohol addiction to, to try and you know, numb the memories of what they've suffered. Um, many of our women talk very openly about that, um, the mental health consequences for them of, uh, of their years in the industry. So, you know, that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, I've never heard a, a young girl say uh, when when she's been asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've never heard a young girl say, I'd like to be a prostitute, I'd like to work in the no. sex industry. No, that's right. But they're often recruited into the industry with, with false information about it. One of our contributors from Melbourne actually said that she read material from Scarlet Alliance, which made it sound like a, a great industry that you would have wonderful relationships with your uh, sister, you know, prostitutes and what a great life it would be. And, and so, yeah, one of our women said she was directly recruited into, into the industry through Scarlet Alliance uh, promotional material. The way, yep. the way it's sort of publicised. Oh, and um, especially the movie, Pretty Woman. Yes, the movie Pretty Woman. Yeah. And uh, when, yeah. when yep. people were asked, you know, why they have gone into that field, and they said, well, because I want to be like Pretty Woman. I, I want to meet, yeah. you know, my perfect man. And that yeah, was the illusion. Right. That... They'll, all read, they'll all meet Richard Gere and live happily <laughs> ever after. Uh, the book uh, is not about uh, the, the Pretty Woman version, that's for sure. There's nothing, there's nothing pretty in, in this book about the reality of the industry. No, no, there certainly isn't. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Beth. I, uh, we covered a lot of territory. I don't think I've ever done an interview where I've been asked to talk about all five books at once. Oh, right. So uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was new for me. So, yes, yeah, thanks so much. That's thanks great. so much for your interest. And I've been speaking to Melinda Tankard-Reese about all of her books. I'm Cathy Weiss, and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio.